0: It's such a joy to have you all here this morning to be able to share those scriptures that Pete took us through. What a wonderful journey through the scriptures that was, uh, bringing up both from the Old and the New Testament, from different books, the the journey of the cross. It was a a truly wonderful thing to be able to listen and to, to read those scriptures. But this morning, we're going to consider, I believe, the greatest question that you or I could ever ask and that question is how can I be right with God it's a great question it's the supreme problem of this life and no more important question could ever be asked by you or anyone else how can I how can I be right with God See, somewhere in the world this morning someone is cutting themselves with a knife, hoping to get the approval of God. Somewhere in the world a man is lying on a bed of nails, proving by his mastery of pain that his worthiness is uh, that he is worthy of eternal life. In the Middle East, millions of believers pray towards Mecca this morning, following the dictates of their religion. Thousands of people, even in this city, are going to church probably for the first time this year. Why? Why are they doing these things? The answer is always the same. The men and women who do them are desperately wanting to be right with God. How can a person be right with God? A totally sincere question. We all want to stand before God one day and we want to say uh, him to let us into his heaven and the reality is that one fact explains most of the religious activity in the world around us from going to church to bowing down to mecca from resting on a bed of nails to praying the rosary from keeping the sabbath to saying the lord's prayer we do what we do because we want to be right with god that's why we do what we do and so what's the great answer to this question Is it being the best person you can be? Is it by going to church? Is it by giving uh, to the church? How can you, how can I be right with God? Is it something we can do? Well, to all that all-important question, no answer is more satisfying than the answer given in the book of Romans. You might like to turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We're going to read and we're going to be looking at verses twenty one to twenty six. Some of those verses came up where Pete was taking us through the scriptures. In this passage, in Romans three, twenty one to twenty six, I believe we have the heart of the Christian gospel. But before we get to that section, before we get to the gospel, I want to put that part that is verses twenty one to twenty six of chapter three in a context of what Paul the Apostle has been doing. You see, in the previous two and a half chapters, Paul has been, the Apostle Paul has been building a case on how far men and women are from God. He's been building this case from the the very beginning of the chapter. In fact, he's actually been building to this very point where we read in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Paul, for two and a half chapters, has been building up to that point where he can say that all have sinned. Everyone has sinned and everyone falls short of the glory of God. What Paul has done in the first two and a half chapters has shown us the wretchedness of our sin. He's shown us the human condition is utterly hopeless. All have sinned. All have broken His laws. All have failed to conform to the righteous standard that God has set before us in His Word. And by the way, that God has placed within our hearts as well. We all have sinned. We've all missed God's target of righteousness. Look at chapter 3 verse 10 with me in Romans. As it is written, There is none righteous... Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the condition of every human on this earth. No one is righteous, not even one. No one understands. There's no one who seeks after God. Do you get the idea of what Paul is building to? Do you understand the depravity of man? Your sin is that vile that God cannot be in your presence. In fact, if you turn to Romans 6.23, you'll see the result of your sin. And Pete brought this one up on the screen. The wages of sin is death. You see, during the time of judgment, which we read in the book of Revelation, what the Lord is going to do, he's going to rid the earth of every person who has ever broken his law. He will separate people from himself for eternity in a place called the lake of fire. People who have broken his law will go to the lake of fire, also known as the second death. Every person ever born is heading for that godless eternity simply because the wages of sin is death. No amount of moral uprightness, no amount of going to church, no amount of doing the best you can will help. Surely then the question you must be asking right now is how can I be right with God then? Is there, in fact, a way to be right with God? Is there a way to avoid the lake of fire? We're desperately in need of some good news, aren't we, as Paul gets to the middle of chapter 3. And that's what we find here today. Paul has built a wonderful case to show us the vileness of our sin, where we're going, why we're going, and what we're doing. And here we find in Romans 3, 21 to 26, the best news you're ever going to hear. And Paul begins in verse 21 with, but now. The difference between heaven and the lake of fire hangs on these two words, but now. In fact, these two words show that God's grace is greater than our sin. These two words show His mercy is infinitely greater than our iniquity. What is God's answer to the depravity of the human race? What is God's answer to the fact that there's none righteous, not even one? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. And the first thing we see in these verses, the first thing we see is that the righteousness we need to be right with God actually comes from... Not from ourselves, but from God. Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God is manifested, is revealed. The righteousness of God has been shown. But why do we need the righteousness from God? Because Paul has proved the case that we have no righteousness of our own. Remember what we just read? There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. You might ask, but what of the good works I do? I don't kill. I don't murder. I go to church. Surely these things count for something. Surely my life, my moral life counts for something. I'm not all bad. I want you to listen to Isaiah 64 verse 6 for all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment doesn't matter what righteous deeds you think you're doing there the righteousness is like a filthy garment and to some people this is really tragic news they think that because they think that They inherited or because they inherited some kind of goodness in them that God's going to accept them. The answer is wrong. God is not going to accept you because of some inherited goodness that you think you might have. Goodness isn't inherited like blue eyes and brown hair. You don't inherit goodness. In fact, what you inherited from your parents is a sin nature. A nature that caused you to be alienated from God from the moment you were born. You were alienated from him because of the nature that Pete read about in Adam. No one had to teach you to say no. You figured that all all out for yourself. You were not born righteous and no amount of moral reformation can change that fact. Therefore, since our righteousness is those filthy rags, according to Isaiah, the only kind of righteousness that will save us is the righteousness that comes from outside ourselves. No amount of righteousness within us that we think is righteousness is going to save us because they're filthy rags. And that's what Paul means when he says a righteousness from God has been revealed. That's where the good news begins. The righteousness we need comes down from God himself. I want you to notice a fact about this righteousness that has been revealed from God. And I skipped this little phrase earlier because Paul says it comes apart from the law. Just read it again, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. What is Paul saying here? What, why apart from the law? Why does the righteousness of God to us need to be separated from the Lord or apart from the Lord? And the answer is because God demands perfection. And if our righteousness is based on the law, then we'd all fail. Why? Because if you break one law, you break them all. Have you ever lied? Don't put your hand up because everyone would have to put their hand up then you have broken the law and you are headed for a Christless eternity, a godless eternity that jigs up, let alone the other nine. And this is why the righteousness we need must come apart from the law. If righteousness came by keeping the law, no one would ever be saved. Does this mean the law is useless to us? Of no use? Not at all. And pastor has been going through The law with us. The law reveals the righteousness of God. It's the the teacher, the scriptures say. The law is the teacher to show us God's standard for our human behavior. But unfortunately, that's all the law could do. The law could only ever point out what God wants, the law can never compel obedience. The law could never provide that inner want-to that would actually change human behaviour. The law can't do that. So God's righteousness is apart from the law. Then we have the third great truth from this passage is that it's received only by faith. Look at verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. See, the point is, almost everyone believes in something, if only in themselves. Many people say, I believe in God, as if that's going to be enough to take them to heaven. But salvation depends on more than a vague quasi-religious confidence in what some people turn the man upstairs. That faith will not save you. In fact, it's not even faith in God that saves you. That kind of faith is too general, too generic, too non-specific. After all, James chapter two verse nineteen says, "The demons believe, and they tremble." Belief in God will not save you. In God's eyes, the answer—the the only faith that saves—is faith that's dedicated and Directed at who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have the answer to how I can be right with God. It's faith in Jesus Christ which saves, not faith mixed with human works or anything else. And God is very specific about what he wants and he will accept no substitutes. And why should he? Why should he accept... Anything else, after all, he sent his only son to die on the cross for you. Therefore, it shouldn't surprise you that he'll accept nothing less than a faith that is focused entirely on his son, Jesus Christ. And the work of the cross that we've looked at this morning through those scriptures. Then we have this righteousness righteousness from God has a fourth characteristic. It's for everyone. The end of verse 22 says, For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I want you to think about that for a minute and what that means. For there is no difference, for all have sinned. So no difference between the harlot and the debutante. No difference between a serial killer and and a social worker no difference between the profane and the priest no difference between the cruel and the kind no difference between the lawbreaker and the law abider you say how can this be has God lost his moral compass how can there be no difference between Hitler and me how can there be no difference between a serial killer and my children how can that be the answer is that when it comes to needing salvation, there is truly no difference between people. Why? Because all have sinned. All need salvation. There is none righteous, not even one. And so in that sense, there is no difference between the morally bankrupt and the morally upright. Both are lost and both are separated from God. We're all sinners in God's eyes. He has weighed us and He has found us wanting. We've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God and that's why we need God's righteousness and that God's righteousness revealed in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us. We need the righteousness of God. It needs to be received from God. It needs to be received apart from the law. And it needs to be received by faith. It's for everyone. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So once again, Paul is building a case that what we need. And then we reach verses 24 to 25, the very heart of the gospel the very heart of why we celebrate the death of Christ on the cross at a time that we call Good Friday. It is Good Friday. This is good news. In these next verses, we have the very answer to that question, how can you be right with God? How can a person spend eternity with our our Heavenly Father in, in a place that is termed as heaven and not eternity in a place called the lake of fire? How can you do that? Verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. These two verses, the heart of the gospel, explain how the death of Christ on the cross can allow us to have the very righteousness of God. And in order to make himself clear, Paul uses three very picturesque words. Each word presents another facet of Christ's saving work on the cross. The first one you see is the word justified, being justified as a gift by his grace. That word justified comes from the courtrooms of ancient Greek. Greece says to justify means to declare not guilty. But it's even more than that. It wipes, it means justification means to wipe away the record of sin and declare a sinner righteous in God's eyes. Remember, the wages of sin is death. And so when you accept that Christ paid the price for your sin on the cross by his death, God can now declare you to be legally right before him. And that declaration never changes. God looks and says, this person is right with me because my son died in his place. That's how God sees us after we have accepted the uh, the, the, the wages of sin are being taken by our Lord. But you see, to be saved, you must... Be more than pardoned from your sins. To be with the Lord in glory, you have to be righteous. You have to be absolutely righteous. It's the only way you can be in his presence. You have to have the very righteousness of God to stand with him. But none of us qualify. And that's why Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stepped out of heaven and walked on this earth as a man And he lived in perfect righteousness. So you see, not only did Jesus die for me, die for you, he lived the perfect life for you as well. And at the moment someone believes in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, you're not only pardoned by your sin by virtue of the cross, but that perfect righteousness that Jesus Christ lived on this earth is now granted to us. He lived in perfect righteousness so that it can be given, that righteousness can be given to us. Justified. Declared legally right with God. Before I move on to the next word, look at the beginning of verse 24 again. It says, being justified as a gift by his grace. Our being declared legally right before God as righteous is by his grace justification is given freely one version says but that seems a little bit redundant freely by his grace why did Paul just say it was given freely and the reason is is because the word translated as freely doesn't mean what I think we think it means the Greek word translated as a gift in my version or freely in your version literally means without a cause So being justified comes without a cause by his grace. In other words, there's absolutely nothing in us that causes God to want to save us. Absolutely nothing. No good works, no inner beauty, no great moral attainment, no intellectual merit of any kind. When God saves, he does it in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. We are indeed without a cause to be saved. This is the doctrine of grace. God saves those who don't deserve it. God saves those who actually deserve condemnation. God saves people in spite of ourselves and contrary to our record. It's pure, abounding, outstanding grace that saves us. So what Paul says, we are justified without cause, without anything in us, by his grace. But we'll see that it's through something. This justification, without a cause by his grace, is through something. What is it? Look at verse 24 again. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption comes from the slave market. To redeem means to set free with a pay by a payment or price, to be liberated from slavery. While we were still sinners, while we were still slaves to sin, God paid the price for our deliverance and set us free from that slavery. What was the price for setting us free? You might like to turn to 1 Peter with me quickly. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18. He gives us the price in a in a better way than I can say it of setting us free. 1 Peter 1:18 says that we're not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold or from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. In in other words, not with silly religious rituals that were handed down from your forefathers. That's not how you were redeemed. Not through silver or gold or perishable things. Verse 19 says, You were redeemed with the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The price for your redemption, the price for my redemption is the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are bought by the blood of the Lamb. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so when you and I as sinners trusted Christ, God released us from the chains of sin and set us free forever through the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed through His infinite mercy, His child and forever I am. And so as one who has believed in the work of the cross as I stand here before you this morning, I have a legal standing before God. I am justified by His grace. And I'm justified by His grace through the payment of the death of His only Son on the cross. I am redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. But there's more. There's another wonderful word. Verse 25. It says, whom, that is Jesus Christ, God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. God's son is publicly made a spectacle of and crucified outside the city. And there's a reason that he was publicly crucified. And that reason is because salvation and the work of the cross is not just for us. Christ's death was also for God. We're going to see that in a little while in the middle of verses 25 and 26. God displayed his son publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And that's our third word, propitiation. Propitiation comes from the Old Testament, has the idea of the sacrifice of atonement. The idea of propitiation comes from the sacrificial system. And the word simply means to turn away wrath by the offering of a payment. That's all propitiation means. If you're unlucky enough to get a a driving ticket or a car ticket or speeding or it'll have, you can propitiate this at such and such. The word is still in use. It simply means you can turn away the wrath of the police force by offering a payment, whatever that payment may be. And that's the idea of propitiation, simply to turn away the wrath of God through his son's shed blood. In the Old Testament, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies on one day, the Day of Atonement, and he would sprinkle blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. The sprinkling of that blood... Um, or by the sprinkling of that blood, the sins of the people were covered or atoned for. And the wrath of God against the sin of the people were turned away on the day of atonement. Why is that important? Because God's justice demands death. God's justice demands death as the ultimate punishment for sin. The wages of sin is still death. And so to call the death of Christ a propitiation means that God's justice is now satisfied through the death of his son. The payment has been made. And when a sinner trusts Christ, God accepts him on the basis of the blood sacrifice that Christ made when he died on the cross for you. Three words, justify, to declare righteous, the result is you're acquitted. Being redeemed means to be released from slavery. You have freedom in Christ. Propitiate means to turn away wrath. You are accepted in in Jesus Christ or in God by Jesus Christ. Wonderful benefits that come to you the moment you trust Jesus Christ as your saviour. Then we come to the final fact about this righteousness that you and I need. God's method of salvation demonstrates his justice. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Then it says, this was, so there's a reason that uh, that Jesus Christ was displayed, displayed publicly. This was to demonstrate his, that is God's righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I said earlier that salvation and the work of the cross is not just for us, even though it's a wonderful thing, but it's also for God. What do I mean by this? Why is Jesus Christ's sacrifice for God? Well, simply put, if God is a just God and you are wicked, then God can't forgive you. It's as simple as that. In other words, how can God be just and the justifier of the ungodly at the same time? For instance, if you break the law of the land, all the people of that land expect you to be punished. We all feel the same. If someone kills someone, then you and the society expects that that person should go to jail or should be uh, hung. But what if that murderer now throws himself on the ground and asks that judge for mercy? What is he asking the judge to do? He's asking the judge to not do what the law demands. He's asking the judge to actually break the law himself. He's asking the judge to turn his back on righteousness. And here's the problem. If God is the just judge of all the earth, he cannot forgive you because you have broken his law. Albeit maybe just one or two, you've broken it. This is the paradox of salvation. God is a God of love and therefore he wants to forgive sinners but he's a God of holiness who must not indeed cannot overlook sin. How can God be true to himself by forgiving sinners, but not overlooking the sin they committed? He can't. He cannot be just and forgive you. And so God displayed Jesus Christ publicly, as an acceptance of the payment for all sins of the world in the blood of Jesus Christ through faith. Why was he he shown publicly? To demonstrate God's righteousness. To demonstrate God's righteousness so that he would be just and then be able to be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. The cross was certainly for us but it was also to show God's righteousness. And therefore, Paul says at the end of verse 26, God is both just just in punishing sin and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus Christ by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay for it. But note the power of Jesus' death at the end of verse 25. Even the sins of those who lived before Christ are forgiven by his death. When Jesus died, he reached all the way back to Adam and took care of those sins. But not only that, Jesus takes care of the sins of those who believe long after Jesus Christ died. Think of it. In the death of this one perfect man, all the sins of the human race are fully paid for. Past present and future but as as a result those who believe in Jesus Christ find that their sins are gone forever but you have to believe you have to accept that free gift of salvation that God has given us through his son God is just he can And never overlooks sin. But he's the justifier of sinners because he declares us righteous in those who trust in Jesus Christ who died in our place. As you sit here this morning, you may have a religious background. You may find yourself continually asking, How can I be right with God? I go to church. I try and keep the Ten Commandments. I do the best I can. I was baptized as a kid. I've even got a bit of paper at home to prove it. I used to sing in the choir. I was an altar boy. I've done the best I can do. But the question is not whether you go to church or whether you try and keep the Ten Commandments. The question is, have you accepted God's free offer of salvation? That's the question. It's the only question. Paul has gone to great lengths to prove to us that we are a totally depraved people. We're on a collision course with the lake of fire. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the Lord, is now revealed to you. The only option you have is to accept it or reject it. There's no sitting on the fence. The scriptures say if you're sitting on the fence, you're already judged. There's no, oh, I'll make a decision in a, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's not the right time. Believe me, the day is the day of salvation. So the only option you have is to accept that Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place so that you can have and be justified and redeemed and propitiated. Or you reject it and trust your righteousness that you think you have. And when you stand before the Lord on Judgment Day, the Scriptures will tell you, not me, I'm not telling you this, the Scriptures will tell you that if you rely on your own righteousness, they are but filthy rags and you will spend an eternity in the lake of fire. No ifs, no buts. Scriptures are very, very clear accept it or reject it and that's the simple way i leave you this morning what are you going to do with god's free offer of salvation justification redemption and propitiation what are you going to do with it because they're all found in his son the lord jesus christ there is no other place to find them so what are you going to do Are you going to accept it or are you going to reject it there's no sitting on the fence For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Amen. I'll just invite Peter up to lead us in our last song and to share in prayer.